You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There's the story, then there's the real story, then there's the story of how the story came to be told. Then there's what you leave out of the story, which is part of the story, too. In the story of Zeb and the Bear, Toby has left out the dead man, whose name was Chuck. He, too, was lost among the pools and moss and mountains and bears. He, too, did not know the way out. It's unfair to deny him a mention, erase him from time, but putting him into the story would cause more knots and tangles than Toby is prepared to deal with. For instance, she doesn't yet know how this dead man wormed his way into the story in the first place. Too bad the fucker died, says Zeb. I'd have twisted it out of him. It? Who hired him? What they wanted? Where he would have taken me? Died is a euphemism, I take it. He didn't have a heart attack, says Toby. Don't be harsh. You know what I mean. Zeb was lost. He sat down under a tree. Or not lost completely. He did have a rough idea of where he was. He was somewhere on the Mackenzie Mountain Barrens, hundreds of miles from anywhere, with fast food. And not under a tree, more like beside. And not a tree exactly, more like a shrub, though not bushy, more like spindly. A spindly kind of spruce. He noticed the details of the trunk, the small dead underbranches, the gray lichen on it, frilly and intricate and see-through like Hora's underpants. What do you know about Hora's underpants, says Toby? More than you want me to, says Zeb. So, when you focus on details like that, close up, really clear, totally useless, you know you're in shock. Margaret Atwood is the author of more than 40 books of fiction, poetry, and critical essays. She's the author of the 2000 Booker Prize-winning The Blind Assassin and Alias Grace, which won the Giller Prize in Canada and the Premio Mondello in Italy. Her novel Oryx and Crake was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Giller Prize. The sequel was The Year of the Flood. Her newest novel is Mad Adam. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. A pleasure. Margaret This book is a wonderful culmination to this world you've created. And one of the things that struck me as I read this book was how much this world is created in specific words and specific language. I'd like you to talk about choosing the words and creating the words. Many of them are created. And repurposing words we think we know to create this new world, which is so much also our world at the same time. Well, probably the place to start talking about that is is the brand names. And you are driven to create new brand names for products because you don't want to use real brand names uh, because of the copyright violations that might take place. So you actually have to look on, uh, on the Internet to see if there are any products that actually have that name. And you would be surprised that how many there actually are already. So it's not that I'm trying to think up, you know, weird and peculiar names. It's it's that you're pushed in that direction just the way that real inventors of things are because they have to find new names too. 
So there are the, the new names for commercial products, but then there are the names for new kinds of animals that have been genetically created. For instance, we have, and this would actually be a good idea, I think it would be a commercial success, we have sheep that can grow um, human hair, all colors, um, for transplant, uh, no rejection. Don't you think that would be good? I'm waiting for it. I'm told, <laughs> I I'm told think, it's in my future. I don't, I don't think you need it yet. Um, so those are called mohairs, M-O apostrophe H-A-I-R. Because we all need mohair. We all need mohair. <laughs> so the pigoons, that name comes from pig balloon. And the pigoons have been engineered to grow human kidneys inside them, uh, more than two. That's why they're so big. And that is a thing that we were working on in the real world when I was writing Oryx and Crake. And apparently we have now overcome the difficulties and we could actually do that. So those are a couple of, of samples. We have, we have the chicky knobs, of course, and the chicky knobs are, um, uh, they come from a headless chicken into which you dump the nutrients and they grow multiple breasts, thighs, and wings. And because no brain, no pain, no animal suffers when you cut them off. So those are the chicky knobs, and um, we have various other blends. For instance, we have never-bled shishka buddies, which are made of, of, of the lab meat of the future. <laughs> now, have you copyrighted these names? It strikes me that you better copyright I them better fast. I better copyright them fast, right? I suppose so, because <laughs> somebody's going to be doing this soon. Well, Scales and Tails, which is the name of the, um, the upmarket sex club where uh, a couple of the characters work and where they, they dress up in dance costumes and have quite a lot of feathers and, and scales on them. Uh, the, there are now now two of two establishments of that name have been located by my ever-vigilant Twitter followers who let me know about them. Uh, they're both pet stores. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in the future, maybe they won't be pet stores, but they, they do exist now, which I didn't know at the time. You know, it, one of the things that I really loved about this book was just the the way the sentences were, were written. It struck me that if your publisher had been uh, accommodating, you could have just broken the language and written this thing out as an epic poem. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, it's it's not Finnegan's Wake, you know, just so we don't get <laughs> the wrong idea about it. But um, the the other challenge, I think, when you're um, using multiple characters and using their points of view is to have a, a way of speaking that's appropriate for each one. Uh, so that was quite a lot of fun as well. The first book in the series, series Oryx and Craig, is told entirely from the point of view of a young male person. And because I always get, you know, an expert to read things that are from particular points of view, I got a young male person of my acquaintance to read the manuscript, tell me how it was. And he gave me two pointers. One had to do with swearing, and one had to do with how to smoke a joint. Uh, but apart from that, he said, I don't know, um... Um, um, how did you know all that? 
that was my <laughs> response upon reading portions of this book. And I have to say, let's talk a little bit about the swearing. You do about a beautiful swearing. Yes. You do it beautifully, and this is a an art form I think that is highly underrated. It's really important, and to the the way you string this blue language out, it's funny, it's crisp, it's inventive. It lends to the scene. Well, I've known some champion swearers, uh, but also the the friend. And by by champion swearer, I don't mean just somebody who who lets loose a lot of, of, of words. I mean someone who combines the words in in interesting ways. So the French are a great inspiration in that respect. Mm. Uh, they have a very active swearing language and the ability to mix and match and uh, turn a noun into a verb and turn uh, a verb into an adjective or an adverb. Um, is really quite remarkable. So if you read a book called Merd, M-E-R-D-E, which is about the subject, you will know what the taxi drivers in Paris are yelling out the window at the other taxi drivers. This sounds like a valuable (laughs) information that may actually help save your life if you're in Paris. (laughs) the person who writes it is very helpful because if the swear has no asterisks, then it's all right for everyday language. Nobody will think anything of it. If it's got one asterisk, it's a bit strong. If it's got two, you should really think. And if it's three, you don't say it unless you want to get into a fight. Wow. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. It's nice to know that. Now, you know, one of the things that I was thinking that as I was reading this book was that, you know, an oft- praise that you'll see um, in critics' books will say, this book will be a classic as long as there is an English language. And I was thinking that what your book makes quite clear is that the lifespan of the English language as we know it might be quite short. Well, (laughs) let us hope not. It is still only a book. It exists between the covers. Let us just say that uh, the, there are three times in this series, and one is the time before uh, the waterless flood wipes out most of humanity. It is a, a, a human-engineered virus to which we have no immunity. And in that context, let's just footnote the fact that the death rate after European contact with North, Middle, and South America was 95%. So things like this can indeed happen to biological forms. So we have the time before it, uh, a little bit in our future when corporations have much more control than, and power and money than, than governments, and they have their own security force called the Corps of Corps. And um, therefore, there's, there's uh, nothing you can do if you happen to feel that they're doing something particularly awful because there's... There's no separate judicial system. You wish to avoid that, by the way. So there's that period of time. There's the middle period during which the uh, waterless flood is actually taking place. And then there's the time after that when the survivors find themselves in a world in which uh, nature is doing pretty well, but there aren't very many people. There are, however, a genetically engineered species of human being known to uh, us as Quakers who have been made to avoid the sorts of pitfalls that we have gotten ourselves into. So those are the three uh, time periods. 
And while we're on the subject of the Quakers, we should probably mention a few of their features. They don't need clothing, so they'll never have to have a cotton-growing industry or a fashion industry because they've got built-in sunblock, a good thing, and built-in insect repellent. They uh, are not aggressive. They self-heal through purring, uh, which indeed science is now um, underlining the fact that they think that one of the reasons cats purr is to, is to self-heal, and it's said to be very soothing to put a purring cat on your head if you have a migraine headache. I'll have to keep that in mind. Yeah, well, there's no device yet for keeping the cat on, but <laughs> you could give it a try anyway. Uh, and they, um, they can eat grass and leaves, so they will never have to have agriculture. They don't eat any meat. They find it repugnant. So they will never have any slaughterhouses or anything like that. But best of all, they will never suffer from romantic rejection because unlike ourselves, they mate seasonally. And just so there will never be any confusion, parts of them turn blue at those times. Well, I love the Quakers. I thought they were really fun. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this book is the way the Quakers, at first they seem fairly creepy, but then they, you do a great thing with your storytelling in this book. This is, book is essentially a story about learning to read and write and tell well, a story. Well, that's one of the things that happens in the book. Uh, it's possibly also a story about um, building out your empathy to include beings that aren't like you. Uh, so that... Uh, that is part of the story, too, I suppose. I mean, I think there are quite a few things happening in it. Uh, that's one of the things I love about this book is there are a variety. It's all about storytelling. There are so many stories within stories. And I, I'd like you to just talk about the way you approach this as a story because the two books beforehand, unlike the usual sequential uh trilogy. They told stories that occurred in parallel, and they meet at the beginning of this book. And you ended the first two books with the same cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which... it's true. So the structure is sort of like one of those peace symbols. Remember those? They, they oh, came yeah. together in the third branch, then went up. Uh, so the two, the first two come together at the same point, and the third one then carries on from there. But stories within stories are, are a very, very, very old device. Uh, you certainly find a lot of it in the in the Iliad and the Odyssey and in the Thousand and One Nights and One Night, uh, in which one story will contain another story. Uh, and then you find the characters inside that other story telling another story, the story about them. So you can have a box within a box within a box, and one thing, one of the things we do as as human beings all the time is watch your story. <laughs> Tell me your story, and everybody has one. Actually, everybody has quite a few. And those stories of ourselves are things we are constantly uh, working on. We're constantly rearranging them and editing them, and um, uh, seeing them from a different point of view. So. Your tragic love affair when you were 16 may seem quite funny to you when you're 40. And when you're 75, you may not be able to remember the names. 
I, one of the things that I think is is really striking in this book is the way that you'll have the same story told twice. Uh, and this is a wonderful device you use. And I love the, the way that the stories are told to the Krakers. You just have so much fun with this. It, it's really a hoot. Well, the Krakers, there are a lot of things they can't understand, of course, because they they wouldn't understand jealousy and they wouldn't understand uh, why why fuck would be a bad thing to say. You know, if you explain that it was it referred to sexual intercourse and that was bad, they just wouldn't understand that at all because for them it's all a joyful affair. Uh, so they have to, any story you tell them has to be um, edited down to things that they can understand, but then they're constantly asking questions that that take you um, into areas that that they may find quite disturbing and unsettling or just incomprehensible. So they they want a story. They want the story of themselves, where they came from, and then they get it into their heads that they would like to hear the story of Zeb, who is the, um, the male lead in this book, I suppose you could say, a rascally sort of person. Uh, but they get very... Uh, they get very keen on hearing his story because they they like him. He's, he gets to be a kind of fix-it superhero for them. Uh, so they want to hear stories about him, and those have to be really edited because they wouldn't, there's parts of them they just wouldn't understand at all. So it's Toby who's telling them uh, these stories. And at some point, Zeb himself is listening in, and uh, she has to explain that Zeb is not laughing. He is coughing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things I I love when you're in these portions where uh, Toby's telling the stories to the Krakers, that she always has to kind of stop and tell them to stop singing. (laughs) Yeah, so they like to burst into song when when you mention somebody that they feel deserves a song of praise uh, or some other musical tribute. And um, they have a, quite an eerie way of singing, and, and um, it gets on the nerves of some of the human people. We do come to discover gradually, without giving anything away, that it, it's, it's a second language to them. And one of the things I think that is uh, striking about this book is your sense of humor. This book is really funny in many parts. I think you do a great job with the satire all the way through. You think it's satire? <laughs> I guess it's a documentary. It's, huh? it's very hard to write satire in the old 18th century sense anymore uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, there isn't a general agreement about what normal and good is. Uh, that's number one. So one person's satire may be another person's daily life. Mm-hmm. But second, reality is always going a bit further than as than you feel as a writer you could actually make plausible. You know, you read something in the paper and you think, if I wrote that, no one would buy it. They would just think this is so over the top. How could you be so? How could you be so uh, outrageously excessive? you have a great sense of timing with your language, and I'd like you to just talk about that. When you're writing this out, does this just flow from the tip of your pen, or do you have to, like, kind of go there and then tweeze it? 
It flows from the tip of my pen, and then I scratch a lot of it out. <laughs> so like a lot of writers, you know, and then I, then I type up the writing, and I, and then I edit the typescript, and that goes on for a while, and then and then I sit down with a copy editor, and we go through the whole thing again. So, this is not just some sort of spontaneous. Um, spontaneous outburst. The person who could do that was, was Charles Dickens, but that may also be why his sentences are often quite long. Well, I think that uh, the way that you've told the story in this book is just so intricate and interesting and really fun to, to read. And I think that that's one of the most interesting aspects of this book is how much of a book it is, it seems like this, the story you tell is could only be told in words and experienced by reading. I think that's probably uh, true, but, but, but think, of, uh, think of books as texts for the voice and go way, way back in history. So the, the, the long, deep history is stories told by voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we started being able to, to write those down, um, we could do things that you you probably couldn't do so easily in in um, strictly oral forms. But we also lost some of the things that that people routinely did in in oral forms. Um, so part of having a, a character tell their story within the story is bringing back the oral nature of that communication. There's a lot of there. I was going to say there's a lot of great. Um oral history in this book, and you use that technique really well to bring these kind of, this to create the stories within the stories. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of when you have Toby telling the stories to the Krakers, yeah, that really, so, those are clearly spoken to somebody. And yeah, you, and you so get the, Zeb is telling his story to Toby, and Toby is then restructuring that pretty radically. Uh, to present it in an acceptable form to the Krakers so as not to disturb them too much. But she has to put in some things that they're, they're going to have to have explained to them, such as Zeb eating a bear. They would never eat a bear because they would never eat any meat. So that has to be um, explicated pretty thoroughly for them. Why is it okay? Well, I I love this. Uh, one of the things I really like is your vision of the day after tomorrow uh, portions of the story that take place in San Francisco, San Jose, driving up and down the California coast. <laughs> These are things with which I'm familiar. Yeah, and, and well, there's, you... there's many more piles of rubble in the future than there are right now. But there's some right now. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think you do a great job of creating a a near future that has a lot of today in it and makes is familiar to today so that we can get from where we are now to to where you are and that, that back kind again. of is the it always has been the near future in in the in the 30s we would get these we I don't know what I'm talking about I wasn't born but they and I therefore saw them because I was old enough to see the old books that had that um the future would be presented as all of a piece and all modern. So Gotham City, you know, where Batman hung out, um, it was all new. And uh, Flash Gordon, you know, we, we, we would have, we would, goes without saying that we would all be wearing skin-tight clothing. 
Uh, but in addition to that, <laughs> we would have our little personal spaceships, and we would have these glittering buildings. The, one of the things I liked about Blade Runner was that although there were these glittering buildings, there were also slums, which look pretty much the way they look now. Uh, and there were sort of teeming, packed parts of the city that that were not new and shiny and, and beautiful and modern. They were, they were the leftover from... Uh, because there always is a leftover. And so we get, in our own cities now, we get some that are new and beautiful and, and shining, and then we get a whole bunch of others that are of various ages, you know, going back, um, and quite far back in, in some cases. So I, I think it would be like that. There would be a lot we would recognize now, because it's here now. It would just remain. People might be using it for something else, uh, different people might be living in it. It might have got gentrified or it might have decayed. For instance, people are living in, in new New York because old New York is pretty waterlogged in the near future. Uh, but those buildings are still there. They're just not entirely safe to live in. So people have moved further uphill unless they have to live in a slummy part like old New York. It's the old uh, William Gibson quote, the future has arrived, it's just not evenly distributed. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, he's very good in that respect, too, of making the, the architecture very, very uneven. You know, some good, new, wonderful, uh, glittery, shiny, rich, expensive, and others just a complete slum. One of the things I was thinking about this book that I think is really interesting in terms of genre fiction, in terms of science fiction, in terms of literary fiction, is when you think of the science fiction genre, even now, most of the science fiction genre is based on a reaction to something that happened 150 years ago, the Industrial Revolution. It's about big machines and our fear of big machines. Your fiction and your vision of this future is about our reaction to biological engineering. Instead of mechanical trash, you have biological trash. And I think that's just brilliant. What is this trash of which you speak? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the uh, the escaped genetic species, the pigoons, yeah. the raconks. And the, uh, I love your, your vision of the bear lift. <laughs> that's that Wait was a... for it. The, the, the polar bears are already hybridizing with grizzly bears. Are they? It's already happening. Yeah, they found a couple of examples. But um, the Pisleys and <laughs> the Pisleys and the Grolars, it's, so you don't know which is going to predominate. You can't tell by looking at them uh, whether their personality is going to be more like a grizzly, in which case it will run away, or more like a polar bear, in which case it will attack you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's an unknown. Um, the forces of biology are, in fact, a lot more powerful once stuff gets out of the box than mere machines that we can make and much harder to control, by the way. I give you the emerald ash borer and the western pine beetles that are decimating the coastal forests even as we speak. Yeah, so forced by Santa Cruz as yeah, it happens, alas. It's 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 often the little things that we don't notice when when they first start happening um, that can cause um, 
really a paradigm change in, in our world. So a machine you can see, uh, they, are, they are, of course, making uh, nanomachines. And uh, a fly on the wall may soon actually be a fly on the wall because it will be a spy fly. Uh, but, but machines that we control are, are in a sense, um, much less of a threat in the long run than biological things that, that get going. I also really like your sense of the apocalypse as something we, at this point, pretty much already inhabit. It's what your what your books describe to us is, in a sense, that the idea that the apocalypse doesn't have the kind of hard edges. It's not like an instant nuclear flash. It's something that takes a long time to happen. Well, we were doing instant nuclear flashes quite a bit in the in the fifties and and 60s, because that's what people were afraid of. And uh, that fear produced classics of the genre like Ridley Walker. I, I don't know whether you know this mm-hmm. quite wonderful book. Um, so we could still have, you know, <laughs> the thing about the, the future as it's unfolding in the present is that things like nucle- nuclear flashes have not, in fact, gone away. <laughs> No, no, we're, we're, we're not that far from panic in the year no, zero. we're just not writing about them in the same, we're not writing on the beach anymore in quite the same way. Um, people bandy the word apocalypse around quite a bit. It's, it refers to the last book of the Bible, um, and it, it's supposed to mean revelation, you know, the moment when everything is revealed or everything becomes clear, and it refers to the um, last, the the second coming, the the judgment, the uh, new new Jerusalem, uh, and and all of those those events in the Bible. And it's it's usually uh, thought of as being a big war of some kind, or um, everything gets destroyed. And that's not what happens in. In the Mad Adam trilogy, there there isn't a big war. Everything does not get destroyed. Uh, people, human beings, are seriously diminished in numbers. Uh, but everything else uh, remains where it is, and, and that means that for the people who remain, there's lots of stuff. <laughs> you know, they have no shortage of of dining room tables and and uh, silverware. Or, or clothing. That, that will run out after a while, and then they're going to have to think of what to do. But, but right now, right immediately after the event, they have lots of stuff to choose from if they uh, are able to mount an expedition to the nearby city and actually go in there and get some of it. Although there is a serious Oreo shortage. Uh, there's a what sort of shortage? Oreo shortage. There's a shortage of Oreos. Yes, there's a shortage of Oreos, and there is a, unfortunately, there's a coffee shortage. <laughs> there, that, that's an apocalypse right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like you to talk about, uh, what, one of the things I think you do wonderfully in these books is world building, and, but it's world building as world unbuilding. So that's a kind of a, a, a paradox in terms of, of your task as a writer. You mean what's going to fall down first? Yeah. There was this deeply useful book called The World Without Us. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Alan Weissman. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he wrote a book about how quickly New York would would fall down if if the people all left. Uh, so one of the hazards in in the future for these people living in Mad Adam is going into the city is not just a walk in the park, because something might fall on you, as it as it no doubt would. Um, something as intricate as a as a human city with all the electrical wiring and and uh, flammable materials, and no firemen. You know, there there are going to be quite a few fires, are there not? You would imagine so, but, well, that's one of the things I think that uh, these books create is a future that's uh, a little more chaotic than than we'd expect without us. Oh, I think it would be chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would certainly, it would be a rearrangement on a pretty... Uh, alarming scale. I don't know how much walking in the woods you've done, but there's a, a part of uh, the countryside that that I go to that that's pretty much sand and gravel. That is, when the glaciers receded, they left sand and gravel, and then trees grew on that. And then in the 19th century, people came, and they thought they would do farming. So they cut down the trees and tried to grow things on the sand and gravel didn't work. So now all of those once upon a time farms are growing in and you will come upon the remains of buildings. It, it doesn't take long for uh, natural forces to bring a building down uh, if nobody's doing any repairs, which is why you should tend to that hole in the roof sooner <laughs> rather than later. <laughs> Stuff gets in. We actually did. Uh, you did. <laughs> yes, we we had a we had a a bit of a leak in the roof. And I hope you have that fixed now. Yes, that yes. is that was uh, that was the new roof uh, initiative. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Crakers, who are are such an interesting creation, and I'm wondering if you, as a writer, found that they evolved as you wrote about them. In uh, Oryx and Crake, Jimmy is living near them but not with them because he finds them terminally boring. He just they're they're so nice. And uh being a, a boy boy of the twenty first century, he just finds that tedious because because nothing goes on amongst them of any sort of adventurous kind and they don't want to build anything. They're not competitive. Uh they're not, you know, having any sort of Game of Thrones types of wars or anything like this, so he he's he's fond of them, but he he can't live too too closely to them. Uh, they're also overly helpful. They're always trying to help him. <laughs> he just can't he can't really deal with that. Uh, so we don't uh, we don't go into them very much in Oryx and Craig. We see them only through Jimmy's eyes. And um, we're therefore seeing them at, at 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 a remove, just through him. Now, when you were writing that, did you know any more about them yourself? Oh yeah, as a I knew quite a bit about them, okay. but but since we're seeing them only through through Jimmy, mm-hmm. uh, he does envy them their their vigorous sexual activity and their the fact that they're all very good looking. Um, but he can't join in. He's not one of them. Mm. 
So he's he's and he feels he's the last human being. So he really feels quite isolated and and sad. And and he also feels ugly because they're very smooth and you know beautiful looking, and and he's pretty weather beaten and insect bite covered by that time. And he's he also can't go about. Uh, without any clothes on the way they do. He has to wrap himself up in a bed sheet, so they're always saying, what's that thing, and have you got two skins, and um, why Why are you, you know, more or less, why are you the way you are? <laughs> so he's, he's a, a fairly sad creature. Uh, then we go to, um, we don't see too much of them in, in Year of the Flood. We just see them at, at the end when there is the possibility of a cultural misunderstanding because Toby and Wren stumble across them, Wren being a young woman. And they they distinguish, uh, they have a, a mating season, and they, they distinguish that mating season by whether or not the uh, opposite sex is partly blue, but also whether the, the pheromones which they can sense are there or not. So they make some hormonal determinations and they decide that Wren is, is in a position to be mated with, which, of course, could be quite scary <laughs> because they mate in groups. Um, so there's that, little, there's that little possibility at the end of, of um, Year of the Flood, but we're not spending... We hear about the Krakers. We hear about Craig's ideas about them, but we don't come in close contact with them. Whereas in Mad Adam we do. Uh, with Mad Adam, the Krakers decide that they have to come, they have to come to where the humans are to keep an eye on their friend Jimmy and help him get better. By this time, he's in a he's in a coma due to uh, some blood poison that, poisoning that he's got through a cut in his foot, and they're going to come there and and purr on him to help him heal. So they are right where the human beings are and in a position to observe uh, the hideous consumption of, of animals that the human beings are doing, but also in a position to demand these, these stories every night about Crake, about Oryx, and then about Zeb. One of the kinds of stories and storytelling you do in this in this novel is to address the the way we create stories about our gods and those human beings who are not there who become something more than human to us. And I think you do a wonderful job with that kind of storytelling. You mean invisible people. And the invisible people, yeah, yeah. The the, the sky fairies. Well, I think yeah, that's your term, not mine. Um I I think I think if you look around the world, one of the things that you see about about cultures uh, of today and of the past is that they pretty much all have a religion of some kind, a religion or religions of some kind. So could it be that religion is a subset of narrative and that it also gave us uh, an edge in the Pleistocene? Think how much, um, how much it would contribute to the survival of a small group to feel that they had a helper uh, a helper who was who could help them, for instance, who could tell the the shamans where the animals were, uh, or who could um, act as a cohesive factor for the group, and also give you 
courage and encouragement when you were facing danger. There is this observed phenomenon, a man has written about it, uh, John Geiger has written a book, book called The Third Man Syndrome, that people who are in danger will often hear uh, the voice of somebody who isn't there, giving them advice about what to do. And sometimes it will just be a presence, for instance, the Shackleton expedition when they were marching overland, every one of them felt that there was one more person with the group than was actually there. And it's also a known phenomenon that uh, people whose spouses have died, their longtime spouses have died, will get visits from them, either oral visits or sometimes visual visits. They will actually see the person. So this is something that happens to human beings. Uh, that is, you can, you can hear the stories of that happening. You can write them down. Uh, they can be described. It doesn't say anything about whether these entities are, quote, real or not, but the phenomenon is real. That is, people do hear and see um, entities that aren't there, that aren't there physically. So make of it what you will. Uh, it is not a non-human uh, characteristic. One of the th it's it's beautifully described in this book, and I, and one of the things that struck me about this book, there are so many passages where you'll go from something that's really weird and kind of absurd and scary to something that's just phenomenally sweet and, and lovely, and I'm just thinking of one part where Jimmy's asleep and he wakes up and he sees that he's under these a little child's blankie. <laughs> and, and you just use kind of echo the child's rhyme that goes with it. And I thought it was just really lovely. And there are ma so many parts of the book that are like that. And I really like the way that you orchestrate the tone in the book from scary and off-putting and funny and raucous and raunchy to sweet and loving. And I'd like you to talk about those kind of orchestration of tone in this, in this book. Isn't that life? <laughs> it's, not as, it's not as well orchestrated as, as uh, your book is. I don't know. Well, that's nice. Um, I don't know uh, how, to, how to talk about that, actually. I, I think that when you're, you're writing a, a piece of fiction, what you're doing is uh, more or less getting into the playpen with the with the characters and and being with them. So I I don't mean to say that that the writer is unconscious or in some sort of um, mesmerized or hallucinatory state. I, I mean that you are using your your human abilities, um, which include empathy, to try to figure out how that person would be in that circumstance, how that person would be in a particular circumstance. And I, I think it's the same for, for any kind of fiction, whether you're writing about Mary, Queen of Scots, um, or about um, or about somebody in a, in a piece of time that hasn't happened. Um, I, think it's, I think it's the same. You're, you're with the character. You've created such a, a vivid and, and fully realized world. Will you explore more, or are you going to create another? I think three is a good number. It's a very stable number. It's a triangle. And um, I think next, next, next up is creating another. 
Uh, will you are you going to recruit, go continue in the science fiction world or? Well, I never really like to predict what I'm going to do because I often change my mind. But I can tell you about one project, uh, which is along the lines of the myth project that we did a few years ago, in which Canongate Press and and um, a um, couple, actually about thirty-two publishers around the world. PenelopeCon. The the Penelope ad, yeah. yeah. So a number of writers were were asked to pick a myth, any myth, and represent it any way they wished to, except that it should only be this long. That, that so there was a length set on it, but no other restrictions. And I did the story of Penelope from her point of view. She doesn't get to talk much in the Odyssey because she's so busy crying and going to sleep. <laughs> so I felt she must have done some things other than that. So so I, I, did, I did that. And this new one is, it's the Hogarth Press in England has said to a number of writers, pick any Shakespeare play and represent it. You notice I don't say rewrite. I think that would be sacrilege of the highest order. So represent it um, in, in a, any way that you like. So I've chosen The Tempest, and uh, I'm How looking forward to <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't wait to hear it. Yes, there are a lot of unanswered questions that float around about The Tempest. Oh, it's, it's a rich, ripe for... It's uh, very rich and ripe. I've been speaking with Margaret Atwood. Her new novel is Mad Adam. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.